Ms. Radlich. How are you doing today? I'm great. I'm great. So I have a question for you because I don't know. Something about fall always makes me think about my my schooling. What What was your favorite field trip as a kid? Oh boy. Um, I feel like we always had, you know, so I grew up in Massachusetts, right? You grew up in, in Virginia. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, two very historical states in terms of American history. Uh, I feel like we always had that colonial field trip every year. And, and in reality, it was like, it was like, you know, two or three of them every year. But whether it was going to, you know, what's it called? The Old, Old North Bridge. Yeah. That's <laughs> I don't know called. that one. That's a Massachusetts thing. Yeah, it's, the, it's where the Lexington and Concord battle happened. Wow. We would go into Boston. We'd see like Paul Revere's house or John Adams's house and someone in a costume would pretend to be that person. And I feel like I just, th those are the field trips that like resonate with me uh, looking back. Mm -hmm. What about you? Yeah, well, I have said similar, similar. I have way too many photographs of myself in seventh grade awkwardly posing in like a stock, you know, <laughs> with my arms and my legs through, maybe in a bonnet with a dress on, making an ugly face. I was like a, you know, like a, a seventh grader. It was like a four year old. I always made a, like a, suck my tongue out in every picture. Um, but yeah, you know, all those, we did a lot of those field trips too Williamsburg, Jamestown. Every year we would go to something uh, like that. And uh, yeah, something about fall always makes me think about that time period. And of course, given that we are in the election season and I'm conveniently have just taught about the constitution for the past month to both of my classes, I thought what a great time to talk about the constitution, being it that we are from two of the 13 original colonies. For sure. So, Mr. Linden, would, would you like to introduce our topic for the day? I would be happy to, but before I do, I just want to put it out there that if we need a thumbnail for this podcast at any point, you've just described it with that picture of you from seventh <laughs> grade in the stocks. So uh, I look forward to seeing that. I think this is a real Pixar it didn't happen situation. I'll find one for you. Um, <laughs> There's it, many. Unfortunately, there are many. <laughs> um, maybe we'll make a little like collage or something like that. I'm looking forward <laughs> to it. We'll see you grow up in pictures in the stocks with your tongue out. <laughs> so uh, hello, everyone, and welcome to Historically Speaking, where we talk about the history behind the topics in this week's news. And this week, Folks, we're going to college, but it's not, it's not every, you know, it's not a normal college. We've already been to college. We're going to electoral college. I haven't graduated. <laughs> I haven't graduated from electoral college, but I think I'm still, you know, fit to talk about it. So you, uh, you wanted to talk about the Electoral College this week for relatively straightforward reasons, right? It's, uh, it's doing its thing this year. But, um, you know, growing up in, uh, in Massachusetts and Virginia, right, when I learned about the Electoral College, I learned about it as like a compromise with, with the South, right? That's how they taught us and taught it to us, that it was sort of a, a necessary evil to make a deal with the South. How did, how did you learn about it? It's so funny because I did not learn about it like that at all. In fact, I just thought we were just this fabulous state, the state of Virginia that happened to have all the best people come from it, which is why we had four of the first <laughs> five presidents. Yeah. And still to this day, more um, Virginians 
although Ohio is a, a close second, um, <clears throat> have been in the White House. But but yeah, you know, I learned I learned that yes, it was a compromise, but I don't think it was until much later that I really truly realized the compromise. So so Mr. Linden, how would you like if I just walked you through a little bit of the history that I know about the the early stages of the Electoral College? Would you I, be okay with that? I would love that. I just want to really quickly interject that the one president who wasn't from Virginia of those first five, of course, was John Adams uh, from Massachusetts, yeah, yeah. who uh, <laughs> who had every Massachusetts uh, sort of attitude that we really cherish, mainly being incredibly stubborn and unpleasant to deal with. So. He was also the only one-term president for those first, for those first but, presidents. As but well. really, his wife was awesome. So. Yeah, yeah. And John Adams was awesome, too. I like to describe him as one of those people where, um, you know, you think about your life in phases. There were many different phases of John Adams. His presidency was not one of his best phases. So, That's fair. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that I thought a lot about the Electoral College is that, you know, it's best to think about the Constitutional Convention is this, like, really hot, sweaty, secretive, <laughs> mildly intoxicated, riveting summer, right, where these 55 delegates get together, and they truly do sit in this super hot, sweaty, closed up, no windows open room. I've been, I'm sure you've been to Pennsylvania, to Philadelphia yep. to see it. And of course, they couldn't really drink any of the water, as was the norm back then. So they were all drinking, you know, sips of cider. So there wasn't little intoxication going on there. But as you can imagine, it's like, you know, they're just butting heads left and right about all these different scenarios where they just don't agree, because they're quite frankly, not even supposed to be creating a new government, right? They're supposed to just be amending yeah. the Articles of Confederation. Um, and so the thing that I find so interesting about the Electoral College, which again, is something that we've come to really, really determines our every four-year cycle in elections is that, that that actually happened when all the delegates were on a break. Like they went, they- <laughs> Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, they, they basically got to a standstill on some of the major issues. And Washington, who famously didn't make many comments at all at the convention, but was the president of the convention, essentially sent everyone out to take a week be beach vacation, you know, like that's how I like to think of it as they all went to the beach and just hung out. Take, take a walk, take a lap, <laughs> take a cool lap. down. That's right. And, um, and this group of small, like a small group of delegates are, were the ones who pulled together the, the electoral college, namely for the purpose, again, as we said, as a compromise, right? That there had to be some way to determine how the president would be elected and it needed to be um, in a way that was fair to to small states and large states, okay, which is kind of a euphemism at that point of saying slave states and not slave states, right? And so when they created yeah. the, the Electoral College, they didn't really think it was going to last. I mean, I think that was what was so interesting about <laughs> it. They, it was like, this is, we know this is like a half, half answer to this problem. Um, but the, the delegates yeah. were so, I think, just over it, basically, and they knew they needed to move on um, lest they leave the summer and have to go back to their constituents with, you know, empty handed. And so they signed off on, on something that would, you know, something that we still genuinely grapple with, like the problematic yeah. nature of the Electoral College. Yeah. I, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it, the sort of predominant ideas that were floating around that they couldn't agree on was the question of, do we have the legislature choose the president 
or the people choose the president in some way, right? Like the, the idea of, you know, direct democracy wasn't really one of the options when they were considering what to do with the presidency. Is that right? Yeah. Well, it was also interesting because the constitution doesn't say who can vote and they didn't want to say who could vote. So you can imagine a scenario where if it was a direct democracy, right, that it would not, yeah. it, would, it would be in the favor of, for example, Massachusetts to allow every single person yeah. to vote. And they could be like 10 and vote, right? Because that would mean they would have more voters as opposed to, of course, in the South where they had, um, you know, slaves that they were counting. Of course, I think our listeners all know about this because they've been in my class in your class, right? But they were counting slaves for representation yeah. purposes for three-fifths of a person, but they weren't voters, right? So they would be losing out yeah. on that direct. So they knew that the direct democracy piece was problematic, like they had, I think they had agreed that that would be, that would be like a race to the finish of which state could have the most voters. And so this system pretty much immediately has some serious issues, right? You know, it only takes until 1800 to have some real chaos happen with the electoral college. Is that right? Yeah, it's like the, I think of it as the, you know, the electoral college 1.0 is what was in the original constitution. And then 2.0, which is what we still have today, is um, established with the, the 12th amendment. Because again, in a situation where they've, they've decided this as a small delegation at the end, at the tail end of a very tiring, exhausting, sweaty, gross summer, they don't think about the practicality of something such as if you are going to have electors, they need to demonstrate who they're voting for. Is it they're voting for a president? Or are they voting for yeah. a vice president, right? And um, in the election of 1800, which Hamilton, the play, did a reasonably nice job of, of helping folks yeah. understand, right? The electors, basically, um, Aaron Burr and Thomas Jefferson tie. They get the same electoral votes. The Democratic-Republicans do too good of a job of mustering <laughs> all their votes. And they they vote perfectly <laughs> along party lines. Yeah. Uh, all right. Okay. Um, uh, Everybody get out. But yeah, they vote perfectly. They work perfectly on party lines so that everyone votes for both Burr and Jefferson. So they're tied <laughs> because at that time you didn't vote for a president and a vice president. You voted for a president and whoever finished second became vice president. Right. And every elector had two votes so they could vote one and one. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so we have this situation where Burr says, hey, maybe I don't want to be vice president <laughs> like I was supposed to. This is my moment, right? It's it's sort of like a member of the chorus stepping forward and being like, no, I think I'm going to be the lead tonight. <laughs> He'll go on to do some absolutely insane stuff, like uh, go down the Mississippi on a makeshift flotilla trying to maybe secede with yeah. New Orleans. It's not entirely yeah. clear. But they don't end up being able to convict him because they can't get two witnesses to attest to the same act of treason that he commits. <laughs> they can get a bunch of people to attest to different acts of treason, but they can't get two to attest to the same act of treason. But anyway, that's side Aaron Burr and a different Burr. topic. But yes, yeah. that's, that's true. <laughs> and with that amendment, the 12th Amendment essentially shifts to say electors have to elect a president and then they have to select a vice president. Should a candidate not get the majority, later goes on to happen, then the House of Representatives gets to decide that. So... I'm curious, though. I mean, I know, Mr. Linden, you, we've talked a lot about the Electoral College, and you've always been kind of fascinating. So we keep talking about, you know, 
later elections when this becomes an issue. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, for sure. So uh, the situation that you just referenced where uh, no one gets a majority in the Electoral College happens not that long after this, the 12th Amendment in terms of the historical scale. So 1828, Andrew Jackson is running, uh, John Quincy Adams is running, there are some other candidates who get a, a significant number of votes, and Jackson gets the most electoral votes by a pretty significant margin, but he doesn't get 50% of the votes, and so it gets thrown to the House of Representatives who decide, no, we want John Quincy Adams to be in charge instead. And John Quincy Adams, you know, goes on to be just as disliked as his father. So uh, <laughs> I know I was, I was only chuckling because I was thinking of the the two the dynasty the one term dynasty yeah exactly of Adams family. yeah the real <laughs> that's the Adams family uh, the real Adams family. Although again, John Quincy Adams goes on to be a fabulous yeah. congressman after his presidency. Absolutely, so again, absolutely. And Adams and family. speaking of another president who I think does a very good job after being president, despite the fact that we generally don't know a whole lot about him as president or before president or after president, is Rutherford B. Hayes, um, <laughs> who of course gets elected. I'm sure all of our audience knows. Actually, my my kids in my AP Gov class will know because I had them listen to a podcast about Rutherford B. Hayes. Um, I didn't know he was so great after his presidency. Oh, he was he was awesome. He uh, after wow. he was a president, he pushed for civil service reform. He advocated for um, you know, he was a lawyer who advocated for fugitive slaves. He uh, went on a, a big speaking tour talking about the importance of civil service reform and you know, personally he was an abolitionist and and did a lot of awesome stuff after being a president. But um, he was elected in the most dubious circumstances of any president, I would say maybe even more than 2000, you know, where the, the mm -hmm. famous Bush v. Gore decision gave, gave Bush the presidency. But in that situation, they went into a period after the election up until back then the inauguration was on March 4th, which I think is a great day for an election. It's like, let's March 4th. <laughs> they actually didn't figure out who was going to be president this election until March 2nd. It was between Hayes and Samuel Tilden, the guy who famously broke up the, the Tammany Hall ring, a political racket in New York City. And the two of them, there were a couple of states, a couple of major states, including Florida, uh, I believe, that were up for discussion. It was not clear who had won the state. And basically over a series of months, and you know, it's a little bit iffy exactly what happens, but it appears that after some political horse trading, namely some kind of an agreement or a tacit agreement to end Reconstruction if Hayes became the president, uh, they ended up awarding all three of these states to Hayes, uh, even though he had lost the popular vote. And it's really questionable whether he won the Electoral College vote. But mm -hmm. either way, uh, he's awarded the presidency and he goes on to end Reconstruction and you know, have one term of not particularly famous presidential action. But, you know, this is one of five times that the president who has been elected has not won the Electoral College vote, right? It happens again in 1888. It happens again in, well, it very nearly happens in 1960 and a couple other ones, 1968, which I know we're going to come, come on to. But it doesn't happen in 2000 and it doesn't happen in uh, 2016. Right. So that's mm -hmm. that's five times. I think I calculate that something like an eight percent failure rate on the matchup between the mm -hmm. Electoral College and the popular vote. Yeah. Oh, just uh, you said the five times that they didn't win the Electoral vote, but you meant to say oh, the, the popular vote. Yeah. Yeah. The yeah, popular yeah. Vote. yeah. Yeah. 
yeah. My apologies. Just for our close listeners out there. Yeah. 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 I always find that that situation so interesting, the 1876 one, because it really truly demonstrates the enormous historical repercussions of the decision of the president. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if Reconstruction would have been over, but certainly it is over yeah. with the with the administration. to touch on was really the only time where there was an almost chance that the electoral college would be removed. Um, and that was in the sixties. Yeah. So as we said before, you know, you have to have a majority to win the electoral college and some reason, you know, I always, I don't know if you get this, but I get students who ask all the time, why don't we have more than two candidates? Why do we always have these two parties, you know, and why, why can't we have more? And I think, it really goes down to the electoral college because you need to have a majority of the whole, right? So you have the electoral college is established by how many senators are in your state plus the number of representatives. Um, And that's how many electoral votes each state gets. And so right now, for example, with 535 electors, you need 270 electoral votes to win. That is a very hard thing to do if there's a third candidate. So it's in the best interest of the two major parties to squash that basically as quickly as possible, because then you get situations where the House of Representatives may be determining the vote. And even within the states, we have the same issue because most states, the vast majority of them, if you win the majority of the, you know, the votes in the state, then you get all of the electors. And so if we had a bunch of situations where no one wins a majority in the states because there are multiple parties and you know only people get a plurality. That's chaos for the state systems as well. So as you're saying, really like the game theory of this essentially uh, points towards having a two-party system. And there are lots of mm-hmm. problems with other systems of elections. You know, we could talk about the British parliamentary system and all the, the ramifications of that game theory, which are just as chaotic, but they don't mm-hmm. necessarily point to a two-party system in the same way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in '68, you know, there was there was these three candidates. It was basically Nixon, uh, Richard Nixon, Hubert Humphrey, um, who was the vice president under Lyndon B. Johnson, and then this third candidate, George Wallace, who yeah. famous segregationist, Alabama governor. I mean, truly a third party candidate. Not he did not speak to the center of America yeah. at all. And so, you know, both both members of the Republican Party and the Democratic Party were stressed about the fact that Wallace may truly get, in fact, he's, I think, the only third-party candidate that's ever won a couple of states fully on his own. He had something like 46 electors or something like that. But prior to the election, there was such a concern that Wallace was going to take away enough of the electoral votes that there would be, again, a situation where it was in the House. And we have to remember that we think 2020 is bad. Oh, 1968 was like hell on earth, right? It's the middle of the Vietnam War. Martin Luther King has been assassinated. Malcolm X has been assassinated. Robert F. Kennedy has been assassinated. Um, All obviously major political figures. It's only eight years after our president has been assassinated. There's riots in the streets at the Democratic Convention in Chicago. I mean, it is bad, bad, bad. And so the House of Representatives actually passed an amendment to abolish the Electoral College. It's like the farthest that that has ever gotten. And even Richard Nixon, after he is elected, which he, by the way, did overwhelmingly win the Electoral College, 
he supports this because he recognizes that this is a problem. The good old South. <laughs> we get in the way again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the South basically puts their, their foot down and with the senators who, uh, you know, it's equal, equal senators in each state that it does not go far in the Senate. And that's pretty much, at least my, I don't know, maybe you know of others, but I think that's the lot, the end. No, as far as I know, that's, that's dismantling. That's the far, the most traction that that's ever gotten as a political idea. I mean, there's a lot of talk about it swirling around today, but it's certainly an enigmatic part of our government, to say the least. And I think it's, uh, there are certain pieces of it that, you know, feel very undemocratic, right? The, the whole sort of concept of it, right, derives in some part from, and it was argued for by Hamilton under these premises in the, in the Federalist Papers, the idea that having these electors is sort of a last line of defense of, you know, decent property-owning people overruling the will of the, the, the rabble, right? I mean, so, mm-hmm. so that's certainly the negative take on it, is that that's, mm-hmm. that's where it derives from. And I don't think that Hamilton would necessarily have been particularly squeamish about hiding the fact that uh, he didn't trust the average person to, to make major political decisions in the way that some of the other framers did, framers of the Constitution. But yeah, no, I, I don't think he trusted the average voter. And, and I think a lot of founding fathers didn't. But I also think maybe even more importantly, when we can, like, if we're making, like, a, a pros and cons yeah. of the Electoral College, right? Um, one major con is, is it really was, it was pr- not proposed, but certainly pushed. I don't know if it was proposed, but it was certainly pushed by the South who recognized that they had quite a few representatives because again of their larger population with both free free whites and enslaved um, blacks that was good for the number of electors but would be bad if they had a popular vote because yeah. such a large portion of their population were not voters yeah. and they were never going to be voters if they were enslaved right yeah and so they'd be a huge huge disadvantage but for the electoral college There's a nuanced discussion to be had about some of the positives of the Electoral College, right? I don't know that any of them are that it's super democratic. I don't know that that's any of the positives. But one piece that to me just feels like wildly archaic and just like blatantly anti-democratic is the idea of of faithless electors. And we were chatting about this a little bit earlier. I I was digging into this because I think it's just fascinating that um, in most states, it is still the case that if the elector, you know, so when you vote, you're not actually voting for the candidate, you're voting for a slate of electors nominated by the party who will go and cast the official votes for the president. Um, And they are supposed to vote for the person that their constituents tell them to vote for. But now I should say that 33 states do have a measure in place saying that the electors constitutionally do have to vote for the person that they're supposed to. But that means that many don't, right? There was a law passed relatively recently, or uh, and that was then challenged in the Supreme Court this year about whether it's okay to penalize electors for not choosing the candidate that they're supposed to. And the, the court upheld that you can penalize them for not voting the way that they're supposed to. But that's after the fact. 
And mm -hmm. uh, it's only in the states that choose to pass a law that way. And it's not like this never happens. Uh, there are faithless electors in pretty much every election. I think we had seven in the previous one. And it's never been enough to significantly affect. It's never been enough to affect a candidate getting a majority, right? We've never had mm -hmm. that situation. But, and it remains unlikely, but as one of the articles I was reading said, I think it was from the Brookings Institute, this election cycle has redefined unlikely, right? So, <laughs> uh, so I don't know. It's not out of the question that some faithless electors could play a role in this upcoming election. And, and the fact that they could, you know, even if it ends up favoring the side that, that you support in the upcoming election, I think that's pretty scary from a dem democracy standpoint, right? That mm -hmm. people just saying, I know that these thousands of people cast their vote in favor of this candidate, but because of technically how this system works, I'm going to change my mind. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So uh, to add, you know, one final thing, I think it's, we've obviously demonstrated some of the ways that the electoral college um, perhaps is not democratic, but I think it's just as important to suggest or to discuss, you know, maybe not how important it is, because I'm not sure that anyone is going to, you know, die on the cross defending the electoral college, but certainly when we think about what would be an alternative, in other words, like, let's just say thought experiment, I love doing brief thought experiments, what would happen if we got rid of the electoral college? Like, what, what, would, what would come in? I, I read a really great article recently about the way in which the electoral college, as weird and convoluted as it is, prevents us from a nationwide kind of chaos of a close election, right? So if you look at an election like 1960, right, where the popular vote, I think, was divided by 0.2% mm -hmm. or something like that, but it ended up being a straightforward victory for Kennedy mm -hmm. in the Electoral College. And so it settled it. There was a smooth transition of power. If you mm -hmm. have that situation where it is 0.2% and we know the margins of recounts, even in one state, can be significant. If you look at that spread across an entire country, if we have just a 0.2% or even you know a 1% margin, a recount could swing that. So anytime we have a an election where the popular vote is that close, you could see people calling for a national recount. And so that's just what happened in 2000, which wasn't national, of course, it was just Florida, but you know, that's basically what happened in 2000. Exactly. And the fact that it was isolated to Florida, right. And we could just deal with the, and you know, I don't know that they necessarily deal with it, dealt with it particularly well, but just mm -hmm. dealing with the arcana of the state laws of Florida regarding recounts. Imagine dealing with the arcane laws of every state doing a recount and the way that those legal procedures would go on and on and on about the recount and whether it was valid or not. Or if people thought that the, if a group of electors or a, a group of, or the state legislature decides that it's too close to be a legitimate result, especially with allegations of tampering in our elections, right? Mm -hmm. The state legislature has the power to override the vote and say, we're going to pick this slate of electors because it's too close to call. Because in states, just like in the nation, if it's too close to call, it goes to the legislature. So you could see a situation where a small majority for a state, say Pennsylvania, where there's a conservative legislature and a Democratic governor, you could see if it was very close, the states say, 
well, we don't think this is a reliable number if it's you know 0.2% or whatever, we're going to go ahead and throw it to our state legislature who's going to make the decision. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, completely. I also think there's something to be said about the fact that despite the fact that, that we seem to be living through a very divided period of time in a weird way, the Electoral College is, is a unifying force in that it gives folks you know, all over the country some sort of voice. I mean, I know we always, the, the general rule is like, oh, well, the Electoral College kind of takes away your voice because if you live in a predominantly blue state or predominantly red state, if you're of the opposing party, then your, your vote doesn't necessarily count. But I always like to think of it from this per perspective of, well, what if we didn't have that, right? And then wouldn't it just be the most populated areas in the country that determine the election? which happen to be largely on the coasts um, yeah. and in cities, right? And how would we have a country that was truly unified if this, the urban centers were the ones that were always yeah. dictating who became president? Yeah, and, and one, of my, one of my favorite facts is, uh, you know, Wyoming is, despite having the fewest number of electors, is the uh, most overrepresented state. Because if you did it by just strictly population, of course, electors is the number of representatives you have plus two for everyone, and they have just one representative and then two electors. So that's three total. Um, but they really should only have two, because if we did the representatives purely by population, they would have zero. And zero. <laughs> California, and California, which is, uh, has the most representatives and therefore the most electors, is the most underrepresented state, because they should have that one from Wyoming, if we did it purely mm -hmm. by population. So mm -hmm. uh, it's an interesting question moving forward, the, the question of just how direct we like our democracy in the United mm -hmm. States and, and how much we are buying into our republic piece and how much we're buying into our democracy piece. And, and I think that maybe is a, a whole nother podcast in the future. What do you yeah, think? I think so. pleasure as, as always, always as, as always, always. Um, it's been a lot of fun uh, and I think that'll that'll just about do it for us this time and I, I guess uh, just to remind folks as we sign off here please do put pressure on Miss Ratledge to come forth with the photos uh, <laughs> of her in the stocks we've been promised uh, the American people need to hold their representatives accountable <laughs> and in the same way students need to hold their teachers accountable and there's never been a single embarrassing picture of me, so don't even bother asking. <laughs> All right. I think that's going to do it for us this week. All right. Talk okay. to you next week, Miss Rowley. Thanks, Mr. Linden.